Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Grab a seat, grab a seat. Well, howdy. Man, we are in continuing our series in the um, in First Samuel, look at the life of David. So if you have a Bible, go to your Old Testament all the way back. We're going to be in First uh, Samuel chapter 17, looking at the most epic moment personally, other than the resurrection in the Bible. I mean, Jesus has some, some neat stuff. Um, he rose from the dead for our sins. That was huge. But other than the works of Jesus, this is probably one of the most epic moments in the Bible. It is the moment between David and Goliath. I mean, it is, it is exciting, it is intense, it is exhilarating. It will change your life if we see it the right way. So I'm gonna read it for us, pray for us one more time, and we're gonna jump in. First Samuel chapter 17, we're gonna start in verse 17. I'm gonna read a big extended section for us and then let us jump in. First Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 17. It says this, and Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. You know, they need cheese. See if your brothers are well and brings a token from them. Now Now Saul and they all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment at the host that was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. I mean, it was like the football team headed out to battle. Just like, whoa, we're going to go, right? And Israel and all the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers saying, what's going on, bubs? As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, Goliath, no, no, the big guy, Goliath, came up out of the ranks, out of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. Now all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him the same way, saying, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard David speak to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil that is in your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done? Was it but a word? And he turned away from him and toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him as before. Now, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, the king. 
And he sent for David, and David said to Saul, Let's no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Your servant used to be a shepherd. Ta-da. Let me pray for us. We'll jump in. Lord, thank you so much for this, really this amazing story in the Old Testament. And Lord, I pray that as we look at it, we might see the truths that you want us to gain from it. And we might be people that have faith like David that would be able to stand in the midst of overwhelming obstacles and trust you because the victory is from the Lord. So I pray for this time that you guide my words and guide our hearts. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, over the Christmas break, December 10th, while you were doing a diligent study to prepare for your finals, I strategically took my family to Disney World. Okay? So while y'all were working hard, late hours in the library, um, I was with my family visiting Mickey and riding rides. So it was, um, I prayed for you uh, while, I was, while I was there. And, uh, and it was absolutely amazing. And I'll tell you what, it was an absolutely magical experience. Disney does a phenomenal job of creating um, a completely different world for you to walk into. And in particular, the characters are amazing. I mean, the casting process to get these perfect characters to play these roles is absolutely unreal. They go through rigorous training. They have to be other characters, like in headgear and stuff, before they let them be full-on princesses. It's a whole ordeal. And I knew that this was an intense process. And it wasn't until we got to the very, very end of our trip to Disney that I realized how great Disney actually was. And it was when we had a a breakfast, a character breakfast, with two princesses in particular. One was uh, Rapunzel, and the other was uh, Ariel, okay? So we have a a picture of of us with Ariel. And the cool part, when your kids are my kids' age, I got four kids. Peyton is my oldest daughter. She's seven. Uh, She's beside Ariel there. Uh, Then Micah is five. Uh, Jesse over there on the side, he is four, and Juliet at the bottom is two, and they're cute. And the best part about being uh, that age and meeting these princesses is they're actually the princess. I mean, they actually got to meet Ariel. Where's her tail? I don't know. Go watch the movie, right? So you can you can learn about like these are the actual people they get to interact with, and uh, and I made a cameo appearance in the back. That's my head um, in the back over there. And, and uh, what I was doing is I was talking to a maitre d', someone that chauffeured Ariel around uh, to meet different kids and that sort of thing. So I'm talking with them. And I had heard about the casting process to pick these perfect princesses. And I wanted to know, um, do they look for certain personality types? They look for like certain types of people. So how, how intense is this process? And so I asked him a question. I said, well, how long have you been doing your job? You know, kind of chauffeuring Ariel around. He's like, oh, I've been with Ariel for 12 years like, oh, wonderful. And then so I asked him, I said, okay, um, are each person that plays Ariel, are they kind of similar in personality? Are they kind of like a similar kind of character? Uh, you know, is that, and he looks at me like I'm crazy, like, like I'm crazy. And he goes, um, Ariel has been the same these, these 12 years. And at first I was a little offended. I'm like, why are you treating me like I'm a child? You know? But then I was like, this is perfect. You are owning your role 
all the way through this. I mean, you see yourself as the maitre d', and you're not going to let some dad break you from owning your character. Like, you're going to hold it all the way through. And I thought about that, and I go, there's a reason for this. It's because they're representing their kingdom, right? The magic kingdom, right? Which is a magical land. It's a fantasy land that they're inviting everyone into, and they're representing their kingdom really, really well. And I thought about that, and I'm like, okay, as Christians, we represent a different kingdom and a different king. And what would it be like for us to really own our season of life, own our season, our place, as well as they own theirs. And here's what I mean by this. Owning your season is this. It's your life stage. It's where you are in life. It's your job. It's your current problems. It's your current opportunities. What would it be like for us as believers, as followers of Christ as King, to really own our role, to know that we need to embrace it, that there's no small roles in the Christian life, that we would enjoy it to know that there's battles worth fighting that are put right in front of you. And thirdly, to give your all for it because ultimately the victory comes from God. And to get us there this season, really this semester, the start of this semester to tackle this, there is no greater place to look than at David and Goliath. You know, Tim Keller has an excellent insight into this. And he says, when you look at the story of David, I think most of us figure that, that we are David in the story and that we need to overcome our obstacles. But Tim Keller has an amazing insight where he says this, facing Goliath isn't primarily one where David represents Jesus, or is primarily one where David represents Jesus and we are Israel. David defeats the Goliath as a representative Jesus defeats our greatest challenges for us. And it's an amazing insight, but I want to pull out one little piece of this. David is more like a picture of Christ than a picture of us. We're more like Israel. But I do think there's tremendous insight we can gain from the way that David lives his life. See, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is, he is both a model and, the, and one that we should follow in living our life. So there's something we need to gain from the way David interacts with this moment. But I want to set up the history. I want to set up the story. So for 150 years, the nation of Israel has been ruled by judges. And it's been a loose confederacy, not a lot of unity, people kind of fighting their own wars, doing what they want. And they demand a king, and they find Saul. Now, Saul, when he was brought in to be king, he was hiding in the baggage. They're like, we need to find a king. Saul, let's grab him. They pull him out of the baggage, and they look at him, and he is head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He looked like king material. He was attractive. He was young. He had a rich daddy. I mean, girls, you'd be like, okay, I mean, how bad could he be, right? Well, we see him fall in character over and over again. And in this moment... When they're facing Goliath, they're expecting the king to represent them in battle. And where's Saul? He's hiding in fear like everyone else. And in this place where, the, then, where we see this enemy, we see three big things. The first is an overwhelming enemy. Goliath, it says earlier in the chapter that he's over eight feet tall. The world's tallest man right now is about eight foot six, uh, so they would have been head to head, looking at each other eye to eye, uh, over eight feet tall. His armor was impressive. 
It, was, it weighed several hundred pounds and covered his entire body. He was outfitted for war. He was an intimidating figure. And it says that he's coming out for battle. He's demanding representative warfare. See, there's two ways that you could fight um, a battle back then. You could put army against army and watch everyone slaughter each other, or you could do something called representative warfare, where you sent, one army sent their champion, and you sent your champion. And the two would stand, and the, the winner would get the victory, and the other army as their servants. The loser would be servants. And so Goliath is saying, who's willing to come out here? Who's willing to fight against me in this moment? And in this time, you see that the entire army is afraid. In fact, in verse 16, it says this. Verse 16 of chapter 17, first, uh, 1 Samuel. It says, For 40 days the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. For 40 days he took his stand morning and evening. So 80 times, I'm not a math major, right? But the best I can tell, 80 times, morning and evening, he came out demanding, who wants some? Who wants to fight? And every time he issues his charge, the entire army runs in fear until we see David enter the story. He's an unimpressive youth. He's an unimpressive figure. He's not even supposed to be at the battlefront, right? I mean, his dad told him, hey, go bring some cheese and some crackers to your brothers. Like, he's on a cheese run being like, boys, you want some Gouda? Can I tempt you with some cheddar? Okay, like he's, he's handing out cheese and snacks to the people that are supposed to be there. He's not even supposed to be there. And he hears the same cry that his brothers and the whole army had been hearing for 40 days. But David hears it for the first time. And he hears it from an entirely different perspective. The same words in entirely different perspective. And when David spoke, he says, okay, what's going to happen with the person that takes down big fella? And everyone else is going, what, what are you talking about, David? None of us can take down tree trunks. Like, none of us can fight him. What, what, what makes you think you can? And, he, and he, won't, he won't let it go. He keeps on asking people, hey, what's going to happen with the guy who takes down that guy? And they're like, what are you saying, little runt? Like, there's no way that you could beat him. And they bring him all the way to Saul. And he gets in front of Saul, and it says this in verse 31. Now, when the words of that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, the current king, the impressive, powerful figure that should have been the one to fight Goliath. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fall because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, um... You're insane, okay? You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David saw something that no one else saw, his tagline. But David said, verse 34, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Now, when I say that, it sounds unimportant and unimpressive. When David says, I used to keep sheep, it felt to everyone hearing the same way it feels to you. It feels insignificant, unimportant, unimpressive. In fact, we looked last week when, when Samuel, the current judge, is coming to anoint a new king. Jesse brings all of his sons before Samuel. Which one's going to be anointed? And, and he passes by over all of them. And Samuel asks, okay, um, 
don't you have another son? We're, we're looking for the, the future king. Do, do you have any more sons? He goes, yeah, David. But dude's watching sheep. I mean, you know, I mean, like, there's a reason we stuck him out there. He's belittled by his brother. At this moment, he comes in there, and he's like, what's going to happen with the guy that takes down that guy? And his brother, Eliab, walks up and goes, David, um, where did you leave those, like, three little sheep that you watch, you know, like, during the day, like, you, you know, out in the wilderness? Like, for everyone looking at this, they're going, this is unimpressive, and this is unimportant. They bring him before Saul, and he goes, he goes I used to watch my father's sheep, and Saul goes, look, man, this guy's been a warrior from his youth. There's no way you can take him down. But I'll tell you what, David saw something in that sheep watching that no one else saw. He saw that as preparation. He saw it as no small role. That was owning his season. Let me tell you this. It is always easy in life to long for a different season. If you haven't experienced that yet, just wait till you start studying for your first wave of exams. You're going to be in a cubicle. You'll be in a random spot on campus, and you'll be going, why am I memorizing these terms? There's too many terms. I don't care about these biology terms. I don't want to memorize these terms. Doctors don't even know these terms. They go look them up, right? You're just like, why am I putting myself through this, right? Or it's memorizing your, your engineering equations. You'll be like, okay, I got to memorize 8,000 more and do all these problems. I already know these problems. This is a waste of time. I'm not utilizing my talents, right? You'll feel that. You'll feel like, or you'll be in some math class or some like theater class. You'll be an engineer and you'll be taking like a theater class. You're like, why am I here? I don't want to act. I just want number. You know, like you'll have all of these moments where you're like, I don't feel like I need to be here. Or you'll get your first job and you'll be like, oh, finally, I got my first job. And they'll stick you in a cubicle and you'll be doing data entry and you'll be like, I think I'm built for more than this. Or it's your single life. And you're pining away like Rapunzel in her tower, being like, when will my life begin? You know, you're just waiting for that next moment when you can prove how good you are, when you can prove all the skills within you are, are meant for something more. And, and, and for most of us, it is so easy to spend the majority of our life pining, waiting for some other opportunity, some other role. But David didn't see it that way. He saw himself as living in no small roles. See, there's a study by the Brookings Institute, and I talked about it at the end of last semester. And and in the Brookings Institute, they studied happiness levels in people. You know what they found? This is hilarious. I'm just a repeat, but just it's so poignant. I think it's helpful. They studied happiness levels in individuals. And they say they saw that they peaked across all cultures, all peoples around the age 20, and entered into a, a two to three decade decline up until you reach your 60s. So people, are you 20? Who's 20 in the room? You're at the peak, people, you know? What do you got to look forward to in the next two decades? A steady decline. Why is that? It's because we always are longing for some other season. And let me peel back the curtain on it. That season won't be better either. Because you'll, you'll graduate college, God willing. You'll get that first job and you'll be like, I can't wait for the next job. And then you'll get that next job, and you'll be like, okay, now I'm going to get married, and now we got to get a house. Finally, we've got a house. And then a house, you're going to be like, I don't like this house anymore. I need a new house. And then you're going to have that wife, and you guys are going to be great. And you'll be like, okay, now's the time, baby. We're going to have kids. And you'll be like, oh, this is going to be perfect. This is the next stage. This is going to be so great. You're going to have those kids. 
And then you're going to say, okay, when are they going to graduate? When are they going to leave the house, right? And, and, and all of this process of always longing for some other season, and once you land in that next season, you're just going to be wanting the next one. And that's why you have this steady decline from all sorts of people because no one wants to own their role. Everyone feels like this role is too small, but not David. See, I wrestled with this too. I remember my first year in ministry, I did outreach ministry to the track, track team. And I, I, I worked these guys. I was encouraging them to come in and leading this Bible study. And I remember some weeks I would show up to that Bible study. I'd raise support for this job and no one would show up. I remember sitting in the field house alone with my Bible study prepared, praying to God going, okay, I did not sign up for this. What are you going to do? I remember God convicting me in that moment. You go get them. It's not about you. It's about you serving them. And so I'd go from dorm to dorm, house to house. Do y'all want to do a Bible study? You want to gather a group of guys, like five or six in a little dorm, like, okay, who wants to learn about Jesus? You know, and just do it to an unmotivated group, okay? They, these guys were not motivated. The guys here are amazing. The guys in my tract, not motivated. I remember the first time I got a job here at Grace. I was doing junior high ministry. And it was over the summer. And what I didn't realize is that summer in College Station is a barren wasteland, right? No one's here. And I remember the first study that I had, there was like seven or eight guys there. It was great. It was good. And then week two, there was one kid and three leaders. We're like triple teaming the one kid. Like, hey, what do you think about this? And he's like, I don't know. And I, I, remember, I remember walking away from that moment of us tagging this guy, being like, this is terrible. I thought I was beyond this God. I remember God's sweet conviction to me saying, feed my sheep. One sheep. That's all I trust you with right now. Will you love him? Will you serve him? I remember walking away from that moment going, all right, Lord, I resolve to put all of my effort into whatever you put in my hands. I will put my best into whatever you put here. For David, it was watching sheep. I don't know what it is for you, but is it getting your all? Are you owning that role? That's what owning your season means. Owning your season means I'm going to own my role in this season of life. And here's what's amazing about owning that season. There's no small roles in the Christian life. God has strategically put you wherever he put you for his purposes. There are no small roles. We worship a sovereign God who is sovereign over everything. He controls everything. There's no small roles. And here's what's going to happen once you start owning that role you're going to get new battles to put in front of you, new challenges. So not only do you own your role, you own your present battles that are in front of you. Here's the way David says in verse 34. He says, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when a lion and a bear or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Okay, let's stop right there. When a lion or a bear came, okay? Um, over this break, uh, 
College Station High School, which is in this town, actually won the state championship meet, or meet, state championship football game. So good. Uh, huge. We have a lot of families that come here from Consol, and so, it, so that was exciting. And I thought about that as I watched and kind of celebrated with some of those coaches. I remember one uh, coach in particular, he had been coaching for 26 years, and this was his first time to go to the state championship and the first time for sure to win it. And I thought about what it took to be a good coach, right? What does it take to be a good coach and coach at that level? And I thought about it and I went, you know, as hard as the teams were that they faced, they were never trying to eat them. You know what I'm saying? Like, there was never a moment in going against Alito or whatever else where, like, I'm scared that the ravaging animals of bears are going to come and attack us. It was never that bad, right? I mean, for some of you, you may have had a tough boss, right? You serve food and the customers are unreasonable and the boss is unreasonable, but none of them are trying to eat you, you know? Like, it's never that bad. Sales, you're, uh, if you have a sales job over the summer, it may be challenging, but, but you're not fighting predators, right? Some of you are going to be teachers, education majors, right? Uh-huh. Some of you are going to teach junior high. You know exactly what David's talking about, right? You, you, like, every day you walk into that classroom, and you're like, who's the predator? Who's the sacrificial lamb? Like, you just don't know what you're facing, Right? But you get it. But, but for David, he goes, look, I'm, an, I'm a shepherd boy, right? And I've been given these little sheep and I'm going to do the best I can to care for them, to protect them. And when the obstacles overcome and they feel overwhelming, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge them. I'll tell you what, you're going to face obstacles with whatever God's put into your hand. It's challenges with your roommates, it's challenges with your professors. It's challenges with your job. It's challenges with your homework assignments. And what David's perspective is, I'm going to do the absolute best that I can. But I just want to put you in David's perspective right now. He's a shepherd. He's out in the wilderness all alone. No one's around him. They don't see him. They don't know what he's doing. He's literally in obscurity. And suddenly a bear comes by, grabs up a little woolly, and takes him off, right? What, do you, what would you do in that moment? If you're like me, I'd play the percentages, right? Like if I take 80% of the sheep safely to market, we're going to be good, we're going to make some money, and that's going to be awesome. Like I would play the percentages. Like if I was a basketball player and I hit 80% of my shots, like I would be great, you know? If I was a baseball player and I hit 80% of the pitches, I would be great. I would literally play the percentages, but not David. He says, whenever that one sheep got jacked, I went after it and I grabbed it by the beard, and I beat it over the head. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, this is the employee that you want. I mean, I mean you're gonna, some of you are going to go into sales, and you'll be like, man, it's a tough day at sales. got a lot of no's. I'm like, well, well how hard did you work? I, mean, I, worked really, I called a lot of people. Well, did you tackle anyone? You know, like, 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 how hard did you go on that? Like, man, these homework assignments are brutal. I'm gonna, yeah, yeah. Did you bleed for it? Like, how, how hard was it? You know, and I, I think so often in life, we're like, it's, it's so difficult. We're like, no, you, you, you may be able to squeeze a little bit more. See, owning your season means there's battles right in front of you, and whatever they are, you take a moment to fight them. You own them, you jump in. I was reading a book over the break called The Power of Moments. It was written by, um, by two brothers, individuals, that are talking about creating magnificent moments for people in any sort of industry. And they were talking about one hotel chain called the Ritz-Carlton and how they owned their moment. And you're like, oh, of course, the Ritz-Carlton. Yeah, but listen to this story. 
So family went and stayed at the Ritz Carlton Hotel, and uh, they had a bunch of kids, and one of the kids left a little toy at the hotel, a little toy giraffe named Joshi. And so the dad called up the hotel chain and said, hey, uh, my kid left his little toy there, um, and he won't sleep, and he hates us, you know, because we let him leave it there. Um, he said, but we told him a lie, and I need you to corroborate my lie. I told him that Joshi stayed for a couple more days for a little more vacation. And so can you just like box him up and send him back to me um, and just let him know, like I, I, we just told him he was not there on vacation. And the guy said, no problem, we'll do it. And in the mail, he got back a package with Joshi and this book of photos. So this is Joshi, picture they got. This is uh, Joshi with hanging out with friends. This is uh, Joshi getting a facial. Okay. This is uh, Joshi hanging out by the pool. Um, this is Joshi, you know, going on a little cruise um, around there. And, and I, I, I saw all of those moments, and I'm like, that is perfect. I mean, that's beautiful. I mean, I don't know how much this person working at Ritz-Carlton is making, but not enough, right? <laughs> But he took it upon himself or she took it upon herself to say, I'm going to create this memorable moment. I'm going to own this role. I'm going to make it a great experience for this couple so that they can receive their little giraffe back, but also corroborate in lies to children. Now, like, help them to enjoy that. And this little moment went all over social media. Everyone looking like, that's taking it to the next level. That's owning your season. That's owning your role. That's fighting the battles that are right in front of you. That's, that's putting the things that have been in charge, that you've been in charge of, and doing them better than anyone else. David says, if, if a bear's gonna take my sheep, I'm gonna go attack that bear. I'm gonna grab by the beard, I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna do everything I can to leverage what's been in my charge for my good and God's glory. And the last part I'd give you is this. Although the fight is tough, the victory comes from the Lord. He says it this way in verse 36. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. Who's going to win this victory in David's mind? Who's going to win this fight, according to David? He says, the Lord. He said, the Lord that delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear is the same Lord that's going to deliver me out of this moment. And I want you to think about this for a second. When you pray for deliverance, what do you think is going to happen from God? When I pray... If I need some help financially, I pray that a check comes mysteriously in the mail for $20 billion and, and fixes all my financial struggles, right? If you're praying for a friend and, and they need help, they need like cures for cancer or something like that, which is a great prayer to pray, we pray that God miraculously moves in and removes all obstacles, just cures it immediately. And sometimes God does that. Oftentimes he doesn't. How did, God, how did David see God's deliverance? Did you see it? The Lord who delivered me 
from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion will deliver me from that Philistine. When does God's deliverance come? When he is right in the middle of the mess. He says, I would grab the lion by the beard and beat it. He is close enough to smell lion breath. I don't know what it smells like, but he is close enough to smell it. I'll tell you what, God's deliverance often comes when you're right in the middle of the mess. So is he gonna make your homework assignments easier? Not likely. Is he gonna make you immensely brilliant so you understand everything in your classes this semester? Probably not. Is he going to remove every struggle you have with your roommates? Mm -mm. Is he going to answer every one of your desires for a new job and clarity and who's the one and all that sort of stuff like tomorrow? Probably not. But what is he going to do? He's going to walk with you in the struggle. And how do you know God is going to deliver you? Well, David knew when he walked away alive. That's when he knew. And I'll tell you what, God will see you through it. For Jesus, being right in the middle of the will of God meant his life. For Paul, it meant being crucified upside down. For John, the apostle, it meant being boiled alive and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. For others, it meant putting armies to flight. For others, it meant destroying, killing Goliath. I don't know what deliverance will look like for you but I know that God promises to be with you in the struggle. He promises to stand beside you in the war. And our role is to partner with God in his fight. And that's where success comes. So a couple weeks ago, I have four kids, and Jesse is sitting naked on the floor at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, and I said, hey, buddy, I need you to get some clothes on so we can go to church. And he said, no, and just like starts throwing things on the ground. And I'm like, oh, God. And I want to start playing the percentages, you know? Three out of four, getting them there is not bad, right? Like, I, I want to do that. But owning my season means I love him, and I help him to go and take his next step. For some of you, maybe neighbors, that you've been praying for. Owning your season and, and fighting your battles and knowing that God is fighting alongside you means this, you enter into their mess. It means we don't say, you go clean that up and I'll come by when it's nice and pretty. It means you enter into their mess. It means with your roommates, you enter into their mess. It means with that awkward person that sits next to you in class and you're like, oh gosh, again. It means you enter into their mess. It means you move in love and you take that opportunity right in front of you that God has put in front of you. See, what would it be like if we really owned our season? Southwood? Like, I'm not Southwood. Fine. College student. What would it look like if you really owned everyone in your classrooms as your responsibility to pray for? What would it look like for you to be excellent in your work? What would it look like for us as a community to say, you know what, there, is, there are no lost sheep in our midst. We reach, we love, we pour out our hearts so that more people might know Jesus and make him known. We step into those places. 
it would be world-changing. And you know what? I think we can do it. I think the world needs it. So I want you to pray. How might you participate? What are the battles God's put right in front of you? What are the challenges and opportunities God's put right in front of you? What are the things you need to own that are put right in front of you? And I pray you would say, all right, Lord, I'm going to step into them. I'll give you one last piece. We fight from victory. We don't fight for victory. See, Jesus is David. We're not. He died the death we deserve to die, defeating every enemy. And he says, I just want you to come alongside me and fight the victories with me. And that's what Israel did. David took down Goliath, victory, and the whole army came in behind him and kept going. That's what it means to fight from victory. Jesus won the battle. We come in beside him. Pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, I pray that we could be people that step into the tough places, that we could be people that own our season, that own our role, and God, alongside you, move into this community, change lives by the power of your gospel, and Lord, see more and more people come to know you and become changed by you because you are so good and the world needs you. So in your name we pray, amen. Turn to your tables and have some great discussion. Hello, and welcome to the Grace College Podcast. My name is Kevin Barra. And I'm Jacob Smith. Uh, And we are here on the back end of the sermons to basically look back on the messages, dig a little bit deeper into what we were talking about, and look ahead at what's coming up in our ministry. That's right. Uh, So we started a new semester, 2018. We're here, baby. New year, new you. And (laughs) we are looking at the life of David, which has been super fun. So good. We're a couple weeks in. Uh, we are a little bit off, like we're not quite on like one for one on our talks so far. At our different campuses, yeah, yeah. a little bit off schedule from each other, but um, so far it's been really fun. Just and we still love there. each other, yeah. even though we're <laughs> well, not going, well, you know. Less though. I love, <laughs> it's less love, but <laughs> so good. it's still there. Um, but yeah, but it's it's been really cool. We're kind, We're following the same kind of timeline, but we're just, we're at different points in it and... Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, yesterday at uh, Southwood, you guys talked about David and Goliath. We did. Uh, but I'm not there yet. So at not Anderson, there. we were looking at his David's selection. We were looking at Samuel choosing him mm-hmm. or, you know, the Lord choosing him through Samuel. Uh, this kind of incredible selection in the midst of rejection. That's kind of the, hmm. the way we're approaching it. The way it's framed in Scripture is this idea that David has grown up in obscurity and just rejection on every level, no, no one likes yeah. him. No one wants him around. Yeah. Uh, and yet God looked at that and was like, no, like I'm, I'm choosing this guy. And so we talked a lot about um, just being faithful with where you are. Like even in the midst of rejection, there's something in front of you because what we see, saw in the life of David was that he was still pursuing excellence with what God had given him. He was with the sheep even after Samuel told him, you're going to be king. Like David, we find out a few verses later, you know, a short time later, he's he's back with the sheep and he's doing his day job. Um, and it, it, one of the stories that I, I wish I had time to share yesterday was uh, I had a seminary professor who graduated with his Ph.D. Um, in, you know, missions, world kind of stuff. And he uh, took a job. He got a, an offer to come work on staff at a seminary, a huge seminary in Kenya. And so he left 
Dallas, where he had been going to seminary, went to Kenya. And when he arrived, uh, they realized that they didn't have the funding quite right or they didn't – everything wasn't quite actually worked out. And so they didn't have the role they had promised him. Um, but he had moved his family to Kenya. And he's like, well, I'm here. Like, is there another – like, is there a redirection or redeployment? And they told him that what they really needed was someone to oversee facilities and to just kind of make sure that rooms were clean. Essentially, like, kind of be a janitor. And he did wow. it. For three years wow. with a PhD, um, he was the janitor. And he looks back on it and tells, to, just told us about how, like, man, it was this incredible molding time from the Lord hmm. uh, and he, to the point where he was like, you know, every seminary grad should go be a janitor for three years. He's like, because eventually <laughs> what was incredible was that through that faithfulness, he wound up being the president of that seminary, this huge training institute over in wow. Africa. And it – it was really just the product of him taking what God had given him and saying, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to be faithful with what's in front of me. And, man, it's just a testament to who our God is that he He has a plan. Like there, there's a reason for what's happening. And so David saw that. Hmm. My prof saw that. Hopefully we see that in our lives. But, yeah. man, it's, it's just a, it's a hard lesson. It's a good lesson, but it's hard. It is a very hard lesson. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I – such humility. And it's funny, like God's training ground is often through creating moments where he gets to, he gets to carve deep humility into us. Mm. I mean, what a, what a perfect example. What a horrible <laughs> way to learn it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, gosh, you know, I think we can all point to moments where we feel like we are not living up to our potential, mm-hmm. where our opportunities are not equaling the skills that we think we have, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the talents that we're bringing and uh, and yeah, the fact that God uses that humbling ground purposefully to shape character into you. That will you be faithful, even if you're not in the spot that you want. And mm-hmm. gosh, uh, there is no greater lesson to learn. And um, man, yeah, David lived it perfectly. I yep. mean, he he went after the sheep when a lion or a bear are grabbing him. He's like, no, no, I just I grab that sucker by the beard and beat it and took out the sheep back. I mean, you just see a tremendous faithfulness in his life. Mm-hmm. So it is it is fun to see that. So Life of David, please follow along with our sermons. Listen to them both. You'll get two different perspectives on the life of David, but really a lot of unity in, in some of these major themes throughout it. So love the life of David. It's one of my favorite studies to have. So excited to go through it with you guys mm-hmm. over the semester. A couple of announcements we want to close with. Yeah, so coming up this month, uh, we have two big, big, big deadlines. Um, basically, right now is the spring, and therefore we're looking at the fall because that's just the way it works, the summer and the fall. And so this month in February are the deadlines for our fellows application and our summer missions application. So basically, um, if you're looking for opportunities to go overseas, to go share the gospel in places um, that people don't really get to hear it, uh, we would love for you to join us in that. Right. Uh, we have multiple locations. All the information's on our website at grace-bible.org. Um, but applications are due this month, ideally, right. or they are due this month. And then same thing for our fellows. Um, it's two-year program where you come on staff. You get ex- you get experience and exposure to just every facet of ministry. Right. 
both local and international. Uh, and we just we have so many people come through it every single year. And that, you know, the applications for that are due now that because it, we have so many people to look through and interview. We close applications here in a couple of weeks. So, yeah. Uh, and if, if you're you, really thinking about it, if, you, if, if full-time ministry <laughs> is something you're thinking about in your future, yeah. um, this is a great opportunity. We have opportunity in children's ministry, youth ministry, college ministry, worship ministry, mm-hmm. media arts, production ministry. So any of those opportunities, if that's if that's an exciting thing for you to learn more about, we'd love for you to email us um, at kevinbarra at grace-bible.org or Jacob Smith at grace-bible.org, and we would love to talk to you more about our programs. So cool. with that, you guys have a great week. <laughs>